This is the title of our sermon series, When the Pressure's On. I'm doing five weeks, Lord willing, in Matthew chapter 10. This is week number four, and we're going to study Matthew chapter 10, verses uh, 34 through 39. So first of all, this week, Susie and I will have been married for 26 years, and we're thankful for that. I remember when we were newlyweds, you sort of go into marriage and you have a, sort of an idea about what marriage will be like, but then you learn by experience how to actually be married. And it's the same with so much of life. You start a job, you read the job posting, you're like, okay, I think I can do this. But it's often a year or two into the job before you really feel competent. I know when we bring people onto our church staff, I used to think you could kind of figure them out, acclimatize them in six months. I think it usually takes about two years for people to really acclimatize even to vocational Christian ministry. The point is, is that in life, things seem easy at first, but they often are difficult, or at least they take some time to, to sort out and work through. And the same is true of following Christ. Following the Lord Jesus Christ on first glance seems kind of easy. You know, he saved me from my sins. There's a path of righteousness to walk. We want to commit ourselves to good deeds. We want to commit ourselves to speak out against injustice. We want to live morally upright lives. We want to worship him. We want to give our time, talents, and treasures to him. And, you know, it seems more or less easy. Just follow the equation and you'll have success. But we understand as we study scripture and live our Christian lives out that following Christ can actually be kind of difficult. And there's many things about following Christ that are unexpected, that are kind of almost ironic or paradoxical. The Bible helps to equip us for that reality. So if we ask the question, what should I expect as a follower of Christ? We need to find our way to Matthew chapter 10 to seek to answer that question. And I'm just gonna break down this passage into four parts and hopefully this will be a blessing to you as you seek to live out your faith in a point in time when there's a lot of pressure on Christians, there's a certain weight that we're all feeling as we've sought to take a stand for Christ. So verse 34, first of all, introduces us to what I'm gonna call an offer of peace that divides, which in and of itself sounds ironic, I know. An offer of peace that divides. Usually we think peace unites, but in the gospel message and in following Christ, there's an offer of peace that divides. So in verse 34, check this out. These are words of Jesus. Kind of surprising. But he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. How many times have you heard people say, peace out, man. We're looking for peace on earth. We're praying for peace, 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 peace. But Jesus says, do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does a sword do? It cuts and divides. Now, Jesus, of course, is speaking here against cultural notions that existed in the first century. So in the first century, the Jewish people, as we know, had been under persecution for a long, long time, for several generations. They were under the authority of the Romans. Before that, they were sort of subjugated by the Greeks. They were a subservient people, and they were waiting for a messianic king to come and free them from all their problems. So they were thinking strictly in terms of politics. They were thinking strictly in terms of a new political world order. 
So they were kind of hoping whoever the Christ was, whoever the Messiah was, that he would come and run the Romans out of town, fix all their problems, kind of like Christians today. As much as we want it, some of us think the solution to our problems is let's uphold our charter. Let's get back to our charter freedoms. If we could just get the police and the bylaw officers and the politicians to uphold the charter, we'll all be able to like, ah, life is normal again. But Jesus teaches us there's a spiritual component to all of this. And so while people assumed a new socio-political order would be inaugurated by the messianic ruler, Jesus says to them, well, I did come to bring peace, but a different kind of peace, peace with God through salvation. And in the process of bringing peace between sinful people and the eternal God, Jesus also fractures and divides through the proclamation of the gospel. How so? Well, the gospel message is kind of offensive because the gospel message starts off with the premise that you and I have a big problem and it's called sin. We all have the same problem. Sin. Even when we try to be good, we fail. All of us here have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've said things that are inappropriate. We've had inappropriate thoughts. We've done inappropriate things. All of us, we're not here as perfect people. We've all sinned against God. But by nature, we don't like to be confronted. We don't like to be told we're sinners. We like people to point out our pluses. Well, you're charitable, you're good, you're a good churchman, you, you want to help people, you pay your taxes, you, know, you stop at red lights and you, know, you haven't run anybody over lately. And you know, we're, we're, we like credit for the things we've done that are, that are good, but we don't like to be told that we've sinned against God. But in the gospel, there's an offense, and the Bible talks about this in other places, because we're told we're actually sinners. And that sin expresses itself in many different ways. We're called, for example, to worship the true and living king. And then we clutter up our lives with all these idols. Maybe not like literal idols on the mantle place of our homes. But let's all be honest, as Westerners, we kind of worship materialism. We like our stuff, maybe too much at times. And stuff in and of itself is not evil, but it can become an idol. Family can actually become an idol. Where we, you know, we look at our many kids or we look at our marital status or whatever it might be. And we're like, oh, look at me. Look what I have. Look at my blessings. And life itself can be an idol. Whereby at all costs, no matter the consequences to others, we have to live for as long as we can. I think we're seeing that in our culture, the idol of life. It's like we have to, it doesn't make any sense, the response, but people are terrified, absolutely terrified of death. Why? Because for many of them, that, all they have is this life. They don't think about eternal life. They don't think about the impact of their choices on future generations. It's just, I've got to live as healthily 
and as prosperously and for as long as possible. And if you stand in my way, you know, there's going to be a big problem. The idol, instead of holding life responsibly, but understanding that the Lord could take your life at any point, he gifted it to you, you could take it back. People just are, they, they idolize life itself. And we could go on and on and on. There's also the failure to accept the kingship of Christ. Christ is king. You say that, that's divisive. We've gotten to a point in our country where if you declare to someone, you know, Christ is the king, you're like, are you, are you a cult leader? Like they think you're, you're a nut bar or something if you believe in God or you declare the kingship of Christ. It's, it's become so countercultural, and it's happened rather quickly, actually, just in a few generations. So when Jesus says, I've come not to bring peace, but to divide, what he's referring to is that when he comes and declares his absolute kingship over the world, which he did and continues to do, it will split and fragment nations and families and people groups because some will say, you're right, I'm gonna surrender myself to your kingship and others will say, no, thank you, sir. So there's a division, there's a divisive element to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have to adjust our notion of what Christ wants to accomplish in this world. And while we, yes, we wanna push for better political order, this is a righteous thing to do. We wanna push for the upholding of constitutional freedoms. We wanna push for prosperity and freedom and liberty for people. Ultimately, that's secondary to the kingship of Christ. And when Christ declares himself to be king, people get offended by that. Now, before we get to some better news, it kind of gets worse because the second thing that Jesus teaches us is that the gospel itself often brings an end to valued relationships. And right away, you should be thinking about what's going on in our world right now because a lot of us have lost friends. And a lot of you have told me there's been some fragmentation in your extended families, maybe even your immediate family over what's been going on. But Jesus predicts it. It's a hard one to accept. And perhaps the greatest reason why people back down from upholding truth is because they, they can't stand the idea of losing a friend or having a tense relationship with a family member. But listen to what Jesus says 2,000 years ago. He says, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Really? I thought Jesus was all into like, everything's just sort of a big hug fest. Now Jesus' message actually divides families. It's sad, but it happens. So then he declares this, and this is just not fun to read at all, but it's in the Bible. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Wow. We've seen this at other tense points in human history, but with regard to the gospel, when you declare absolute unfettered allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to get a lot of pushback. I mean, the haters come out in droves. Can't stand it. They may not even understand why they hate it, but there's something broken deep inside of them. They hate that. The lordship of Christ is so divisive, so divisive, that it will even divide families. And you and I know we have a lot of friends, but families are supposed to be our most precious relationship, relationships. I mean, the idea of being alienated from my mom, my dad, my 
brothers, my sisters, my cousins, my, my children, my, my wife. If I take a bold stand for Christ, it kind of gets you wondering, am I really prepared to do that? But it has happened throughout human history. And unfortunately, some of the people that become our greatest enemies are people that we previously you know, loved the most and were the, they were our confidants. And we thought, man, this relationship is for keeps can be very divisive. We've seen this even in the spiritual body. I've said this time and time again. I hate to say it because I've, I've, I've try, I'm trying very hard to be respectful of other churches. But my greatest enemies during this time in our history is not the police. It's actually other churches writing letters in favor of lockdowns, publicly speaking out, against churches that have tried to remain open and faithful to the task of Christ, this would be over if all the churches just said enough's enough. This would be over and done with. But when you just have you know, one guy in some remote part of this province and one guy in this county and one guy over here, well, you just get picked off. But if the church of Jesus Christ rose up and said enough's enough, now there's, there are many churches that want to stay open and they, they're, they're trying to stay open and they, they look to other churches as examples. I, that's, that's great. But there's many that seem to think this is a, somehow a good thing. This is a, a just thing. This is a righteous thing to close your church down for months and now over a year. And what, what about when we get to two years and three years? I mean, who in the world knows how long this is going to go on for? There's like no end in sight. And then you have the issue of precedence. So the precedent's been set. So what about when COVID-22 comes in and whatever other viruses come down the, the line? Wow, we locked down last time. Let's lock them down again. Let's destroy our economy more. Let's let our kids string themselves up in barns a little more. Let's indebt our great-grandchildren. Who cares about them? I mean, as long as we're safe. So we have all of these challenges taking place in our country and in our culture. I've heard of people in this own church whose spouses who don't go to church will hardly even talk to them anymore. Whose family thinks that if they go here, they're, they're literally insane. So there's all this pressure. I think probably almost all of you have experienced this. We have Christians ratting out Christians. We have a person that lives on the street, used to go to our church, ratting out our church. So there's all sorts of challenges taking place. Now, how do we respond to these painful challenges, the divisive nature of the gospel, the, the end of valued relationships? So there's two things that we are encouraged to consider. The first one is we need to remind ourselves that our love for Christ must supersede all others. And folks, if we don't get that one down, we're not going to survive. And it can't just be, oh, I believe that to be true. It sounds right. <laughs> it has to be something we appropriate. We take and tuck it away in our hearts and then let it be lived out. The Lord says, 
whoever loves his father or mother more than me, he doesn't say you shouldn't love your father and mother. He just says whoever loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We, we love our spouses, our children, our parents, but we should never love any other person to the degree that we love Christ. Now, I'm a father, so I, I know what it's like to have a deep affection for my children. I, I know that. I mean, those of you that have kids, do you remember prior to having kids wondering, I wonder what it would be like to have a child. Like, I wonder how much I will love that child. And then you're in the hospital room and, and the child's put in your hands and just something happens. Like, I would give my life for this child. I've only known this child for five minutes. But I would give my life for this child. And that's a good thing. That's an appropriate thing. But Jesus says, your love for me must supersede your love even for your child. So we prove ourselves worthy of Christ by loving him more than our own flesh and blood. So you sort of have this image in your mind. If, if, if push came to shove and you, you, had to, you, know, you came to a fork in the road and one was to follow your family into destruction and despair and godlessness and the other was to follow Christ all alone, which, which fork in the road would you take? And unfortunately, many people abandon Christ because they just, they can't bring themselves to confronting or challenging or distancing themselves potentially from their family. It's a hard choice, but it's happened throughout history. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, so the one pretty significant covenantal relationship that we all are either supportive of or we participate in is Christian marriage. Pretty important. You know, divorces happen, but we don't want them to happen. Separation happens, but we don't want them to happen. We, we want to always put forward this vision, this idyllic vision of a Christian marriage where the husband represents Christ and the wife represents the church and there's this mutuality and there's a blessing there. But here's what the apostle Paul said, even about Christian marriage. So we hold Christian marriage in high regard, right? Hold it in very high regard. But sometimes there's division there too. In 1 Corinthians 7, 15, he says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Now in the context here, what he's talking about is, let's suppose, for example, you're married. Let's say I'm married and I'm not a Christian and my wife's not a Christian. You know, and five years into the marriage, she becomes a Christian, but I'm not a Christian and I start to give her hassle for it. And the Bible teaches in that passage that if they can get along, stay together, stay together. But if the unbelieving spouse is like, no, it's me or Jesus, you need to let that person separate, let them depart in order to continue following Christ. So it's not saying that divorce is a good thing, but Christ is elevating our allegiance to him even over marriage. So it's elevated over our relationship with our mother and father, our children, and even our own spouse. We must love Christ more than anything else. Now, when we take a stand for Christ, division often happens. Now, sometimes families divide just because people are being mean to each other. And that's not a good reason or unloving or whatever it might be. 
But we're talking here about when a person takes a bold stand for Christ and their family members hate them for it. Jesus says, look, our love for Christ must supersede every other relationship we ever have. Everyone. We need to kind of do a little soul checking at this point to see if that's true. Now we are in a world that is increasingly anti-family. Have you noticed that? Anti-family. Not, there's really not a, a particularly great deal of emphasis on even being married, sort of like whatever. There's not a great deal of emphasis on having children. It's like, whatever, they're kind of a headache. The family unit is being dismantled and redefined as kind of like whatever you want, two guys, three guys, one kid, two kids, three girls, whatever, right? Two wives, one husband, two husbands, one wife. It's just, it's insane. It's being, the, the, the nuclear family is being dismantled. Now, as Christians, we're seeing that, but what we have to be careful about is not to let the pendulum swing so far the other way that we start to idolize the family more than Christ. So we sort of, you know, stream into church and we're like, we're married and we get all these kids. So like, we're awesome. And every once in a while, you know, you're kind of reading social media posts or interacting with people. You sort of get this little check in your spirit thinking, man, I wonder if this family almost idolizes the fact that they're a solid, well put together family in a world that's kind of gone nutty. And they almost love their family more than they love Christ. You just kind of get this little check in your spirit. So we, we want good, solid families in society, but we cannot elevate even the Christian family over the Christ of the Christian family. Christ must ultimately have our allegiance. And your obedience and your value to God is not based on the fact that you might have a great family. But it's found in your love for Christ, which of course should be fleshed out in the way that you live out your life. So here we are called to just make sure that our ultimate obedience to Christ is paramount. Even if we die alone, but with Christ, we've been faithful. So are you prepared to sacrifice even your own family if Christ were to call you to, to do so? for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer should be yes. Secondly, and again, this is hard preaching. This is the kind of preaching that runs people out of churches. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is one of those like hard to swallow pills, but it's true. We need to hear it. If we choose to follow Christ, we must suffer. I know you came hoping to hear otherwise, <laughs> but if we choose to follow Christ, we must suffer. Here's what Jesus goes on to say in verses 38 and 39. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What's the cross? Symbol of his own suffering. Verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the Christian gospel, as you know, stresses that Christ's death is the roadmap to eternal life. It's through the death of Christ. Strangely, 
The way Christ solved death, which is our ultimate enemy, is by dying for us so that his perfect life could be sacrificed for our imperfect life and we would have access to heaven again. So the cross, the grave, all of that is symbolic of life, but it's also symbolic of suffering because Christ suffered in order to bring us life. So while we have been freed from eternal condemnation, what does Romans 8.1 say? Therefore, it's a great verse. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. It's a great verse. And by the way, that's why in our church, we never preach for condemnation. We preach for conviction, which is different. We never preach to push people down. We preach to challenge people to lift them up. So we don't preach a message of condemnation. We preach a message of conviction to the Christian church. So we're freed from eternal condemnation, but we are not freed from temporary suffering. We're not freed from that yet. And I think sometimes we miscommunicate the gospel, especially to new believers, when you know, people come to us and they have addictions or broken relationships or all this angst, challenges in the world. And we sort of inadvertently say, well, if you, know, if you become a Christian and follow Christ, all your problems are gonna go away. And they're like, well, I, I could use some of that. And so they start to follow Christ and they're like, actually, my life just got worse. I just lost my job. I lost some family members. People kind of hate me. They think I'm weird. So following Christ frees us from eternal condemnation, but it doesn't free us from the world's condemnation. In fact, the world often gets more condemning once we've been freed from eternal condemnation, which is ironic. To follow the sufferer, who is Christ, we must be prepared to suffer. Now, thankfully, and this is where there's just so much joy in suffering, God sanctifies us and purifies us through our suffering. So let me just testify to you how this works in my life. And I'm kind of thinking I'm going to get a lot of nods and like, yeah, this is the same with me. So when my life is really good, ministry's going well, the marriage is rocking, the kids are doing well, you know, the sun's out. There's a little extra money in the bank. I enjoy that, but I just sort of coast. I tend to just sort of coast, just kind of enjoy chilling out, doing my thing, going through my routines. But then when there's pushback and conflict and some suffering along the way, suddenly I'm like, oh man, I, I've kind of been neglecting my prayer life a little bit. I better get back at it man, am I really trusting in the Lord or am I just hoping for a comfortable ride? And I start to like up my game and I start to take stock of my values and I start to think more about my motives and I start to want to reach out more to other people. So in suffering, God sanctifies us. He purifies us. He helps us to grow up. So I don't want suffering. I want to fight for no suffering. But I do know that there's joy in suffering because we mature and grow through it. Now, if we just say, well, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. I'm suffering, so I'm just going to cut and run. Then we do a nosedive and we become less and less mature again. Maybe to the point of falling away from the Christian faith. So we grow the most at times like this. And I've been hearing people telling me this, like I'm praying more, I'm trusting more, I'm Man, I feel like I got to actually take a stand for truth. I'm going to, I got to count the cost. Now, we don't want to over-exaggerate or 
I guess you can't over-exaggerate. You can only exaggerate. But we don't want to exaggerate the, the suffering that we're experiencing compared to some people that have gone before us. Now, this is an switch. We don't want to exaggerate it, but it could lead there. Could. I mean, think about Nazi Germany. You know what's interesting about Nazi Germany? We all grew up like, oh, Nazi Germany. Like everyone there was like a devil. And what kind of bunch of creeps lived in Germany back then? Nazi Germany was essentially probably the most, the richest, most sophisticated, well-educated country in Europe, if not on the planet coming into World War I and World War II. This was like first world And look at how quickly this wealthy, prosperous country, because they bought into lies, fell into absolute tyranny and committed the most atrocious acts. So they got these like educated, sophisticated German people from Christian churches executing hundreds of thousands of people. It's like, how do you go from there to there? In the same generation. Says a lot about this whole notion that people are innately good, doesn't it? This is not true. So we don't want to exaggerate our suffering compared to that, but we also want to keep our antennas up because modern Western nations can easily fall into that or something that looks awfully much like that. So we need to pray against this. We need to take a stand for Christ. We need to ask ourselves, who among us is willing to trust in Caesar to benevolently lead our lives and who is ultimately going to surrender ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ? And that really, I think, is what it boils down to. Are we going to follow our benevolent Christ who always has our best interest in mind? Or are we going to follow a flip-flopping, in-it-for-our-own-re-election efforts Government that can't seem to make head nor tail of things, who are we going to follow? It's easy to be loyal to ourselves, our own interests, but we're really being called here to be loyal to Christ. The text says, let me just read this line again because it's fascinating. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So this is the idea, this is this Christian idea that true life is actually subsumed in Christ's life. We have this notion, the way to live is to stay alive, to be as successful and prosperous as I possibly can, to sort of project myself into the world, to take the world by the tail, to accomplish much. And there's nothing wrong with accomplishing things and seeking to be successful in material things. Nothing wrong with that, if properly motivated. But the, the pathway to true life is to to live in within the life of Christ, to take on his identity, his virtues, his values, his mission, to be his ambassador, to live within him. It's almost like in your mind, you draw like a little outline of, the, of, of uh, your body. And on the outside of that, you draw a bigger one and that's Christ. Your life is subsumed within him. That's where true life is found. This is why the Bible says things like we are in Christ. You're like, in Christ, what does that mean? Your life is within his Now, when your life is within his, guess what happens? Other people benefit from it. Nations benefit from it. Nations benefit from righteousness. Even pagans, people that will never don the doorstep of this church, they benefit from righteous people like you. They may not even acknowledge it, but they benefit from your belief in the sanctity of human life. They benefit 
because of your belief in human justice. They benefit when you speak out against sin, even sin they might want to participate in, but which you know is destructive to them. The world benefits when you take a stand for Christ. Whoever loses his life, in other words, stops living for his own identity and lives within Christ's identity will find it. That's where true life is found. True life is found. So in conclusion, let's be reminded today that God blesses us, but sometimes he also takes back. And that's a blessing. So we stop relying so much on this world. Rather than interpret God's allowance of suffering in our lives as an act of evil, let's see it as a blessing. Instead of asking, why does a good God allow suffering? Let's maybe ask ourselves, why does a good God not allow more? Because we know that through suffering, we are purified. Let's set our priorities straight. Let's allow God to purify our motives and give us a chance to prove ourselves to be worthy of the high calling of Christ. And you know what we have as a huge resource? Grace. This is not a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and take a deep breath and go out there and take the world by storm this week, church. We live within God's grace. Again, when we find our life within Christ, we also benefit from his grace and his mercy and his empowerment and his spirit and his scriptures and all that kind of thing. So let's live large for Christ. Let's not live large for ourselves, but let's live large for Christ and let's allow him to use us however he sees fit so that we might be found worthy of the calling of being called Christians. 